Hi, folks. Keith Jones here. You're fixing to listen to Front Row Knowles on the podcast. But before we get started, we want to thank the Champions Club and specifically Seminole Boosters for sponsoring our podcast that allows us to bring the podcast to you commercial-free. You know, we are one tribe. We are unconquered. In the last uh, few years, Florida State has built a tradition of excellence. But right now, all of us that are Seminoles are facing a challenge. We've got 20 sports programs, all the coaches, student athletes that are involved. We've got some budget cuts that we're trying to uh, work through due to the pandemic. And right now, we need you. In order to provide all of our teams and student athletes with the best possible opportunity for success, we need your help. We need you to join Seminole Boosters. We need you to renew your membership. We need you to increase your contribution. We need you to consider making a gift. We don't talk heavy-handed like this much, but this is the time to be a little heavy-handed. Help us out. Help Florida State out. Help Florida State boosters out. And most of all, we want to continue to thank the boosters and specifically the Champions Club for sponsoring us and bringing Front Row Knowles to you. Stay tuned and listen. Thanks. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee, this is Front Row Knowles with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Front Row Knowles is brought to you by Cornerstone Tool and Fastener, online at ctf.nu. Now, here's Tom and Keith. Good day, everybody, and happy holidays to you and yours, Tom and KJ, with you as we get set for Front Row Knowles, set to close out 2020. Turn the page. We will reflect back. we got a great show ahead. Bob Ferrante, our Osceola insider, will look back at FSU. David Hale from ESPN will look at the macro picture of college football and also look ahead to the semifinals, the Heisman winner, and that sort of stuff. But, Keith, first and foremost, how are you, sir? I'm great. Merry Christmas to everyone. Uh, Happy New Year. Those good uh, things. And, man, did our uh, football season at Florida State come to a screeching halt very quickly. It really did. I got that word, I guess it was last Friday around lunchtime when the word came down. And I, I can't say I was surprised because Florida State was so precipitously thin for really the last month of the season. I mean, even the Duke game was pretty close. And, uh, you know, they were probably a test away from not being able to play that one uh, if it had the wrong result. Uh, that said – I'm not sure FSU was going to beat Wake Forest. I'd like to think that they were. Wake hadn't played well the week prior. But I I guess what I'm saying is I'll just take the win. It was over Duke, end the season. Yes, it's three wins instead of potentially four, and just turn the page. You knew you were going to have a losing season. Uh, It was doubtful that you were going to participate in a bowl game, uh, even if you won the Wake Forest game, just because of the length of the season which I hate. I do hate because I'm old school. I mean, the bowl games were always enjoyable to me. Um, But I think you do leave on a little bit of a good note because at least in the Duke game, you could see what the offense is capable of doing, uh, how the defense could react. And um, maybe it leaves a good taste in the mouth as you get ready to uh, get through the holidays, turn the page and get ready for winter workouts. Yeah, that, that's kind of my point. Recruiting finished on an uptick based on Mackenzie Milton and then a late receiver coming in. And so there's good news there. We'll talk about that more next segment. Certainly better news than what many who follow recruiting might have thought the week or two prior to, to the early signing period. You go out on a winning note and, you know, the calendar is going to turn to January and go from there. A couple of things, Keith, I don't know if you want to weigh in on any of these, but the all ACC teams were announced for the first time ever. Florida State did not have an offensive representative. 
Asante Samuels Jr. and Marvin Wilson did both make the second team. Many sort of raising an eyebrow about Marvin being there. That's a reputational vote, and that's okay. Yeah, this just in, you know, votes are, are not exactly always the most accurate thing in the world, right? Janaris Robinson turns pro. We'll get Bob's opinion on that. Hamza, Marvin Wilson, too. At the Pro Bowl level, Dalvin Cook and Jalen Ramsey, both pro bowlers. Brian Burns got snubbed. So jump in on any of that that I just mentioned, Keith. Well, two things. Number one, I, 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 I'm sorry. I have a hard time saying that Marvin Wilson decided to go pro because absent of COVID, he would have to go pro, you know. But I understand why the media characterizes that way. Um, secondly, wait till you see, and I know they're doing it virtually, but, um, you know, in terms of, 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 of Burns potentially, you know, finding a spot, Remember at the end of the season at the professional level, you have your surgeries. You know, if you want to clean up a knee, if you've got to clean up something, restructure a shoulder. Uh, and I know they're not playing the game, so it's not like they're going to opt out and not be on the field. I think they're doing something with video. But I'm hopeful, particularly for him, that maybe he gets in as an alternate or gets bumped up because someone isn't able or doesn't choose to participate the way they're participating because he certainly had a year that's worthy. And that's one of the downsides at the professional level. If you're a little bit of an unknown and you have a great year in a smaller market, you know, the national media doesn't get a hold of you. And a lot of the Pro Bowl is uh, voted on by fans. So the fans don't get to see you. And, um, you know, that's why I use that term reputational vote that Marvin got. That really plays a big part in the all, all pro stuff at the NFL level. Good point about Brian Burns, and hopefully he does ultimately get in. Let's talk basketball real quick, and then uh, the rest of the show, as I mentioned, Bob Franti, David Hay, a lot of football in there. But uh, Leonard Hamilton being on the ballot for the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, you worked with him closely for two decades, Keith. And when you really dive into his resume, and, and you and I know it pretty well, there's an awful lot of meat there. I mean, three times an ACC coach of the year, but also two times the Big East coach of the year. The only coach that that was multiple times the coach of the year in those two conferences. Four times a national coach of the year from different organizations. He's going to hit 600 overall wins this year. He's going to hit 400 overall wins at FSU. Plus everything he's done just in terms of his players, rebuilding programs, uh, being a trailblazer with what he's done throughout his career. There, there's an awful lot there. And so it's nice to see that Leonard's at least on the ballot right now. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, again, Seminole fans, uh, we've got to educate ourselves. I mean, he's the fifth winningest coach in the history of the ACC uh, and, and did that at three programs that are football programs, if you want to think of it that way. I mean, yeah. he wasn't at Kentucky or Kansas or Duke or North Carolina. Uh, he wasn't even at Syracuse or, 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 or you know, any of those. Louisville. Yeah. Um, and the things that he's done off the field, uh, I'll, I'm sure I will mention this a couple of times during this broadcast, but Solomon Olive coming back to get his degree. Well, he's been gone, what, three years, four years. I, I can't even remember. It all runs together. I mean, that puts Leonard at, you know, like 94 of the 96 kids he signed. And, you know, two of those kids are Isaac and, and Devin Vassell or whatever. I mean, you know, kids that are, first round draft picks and and in Isaac's case, you know, making millions of dollars. And that to me also needs to be considered uh, where he did it, how he's done it. 
Uh, I hope he's the first ballot guy. I know that's a little unusual and it takes time at that level, but uh, uh, I'm pulling for him. I think he deserves it. And I think we as Florida State faithful need to continue to ramp up our appreciation for what he's done for this program. One last basketball note, and then as I mentioned, we'll get back to football for most of this show. But uh, the really good news, happy holiday story we all wanted to hear is that Keontae Johnson from the University of Florida being released from the hospital. And uh, kudos to the University of Florida for taking out a full-page ad in the Tallahassee Democrat, thanking both the Florida State athletic training and medical personnel, and also saluting TMH. Uh, does go to show that uh, when you get off the field, uh, you don't have to remain rivals. And so I, I, it was a scary situation, Keith. And I, he's been diagnosed apparently with with heart inflammation or an acute uh, myocarditis, which which could be related to COVID. We don't know that yet. But but for now, what we know is that at least he's going home. And, and, and frankly, he's still alive. Very much so. Very much so. I think the concern uh, that will continue to have to be looked at is, is there any link between the, the, the COVID-19 virus and that particular condition, because that's been suggested a time or two uh, over the last few months. Uh, so that, that is of concern, uh, and certainly and hopefully appropriate resources will be directed towards that to try to see if there is a link. Well said. We'll take a break, come back, and uh, welcome Bob Ferranti to the show right after this on Front Row Knowles. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Welcome back to Front Row Knowles. Tom and KJ with you. Let's open up that Earl Bacon Agency hotline, the Earl Bacon Agency, ensuring your future together. Say hello to our Osceola insider, Bob Ferranti. Hey, Bob, abrupt end of the season, but the year is coming to an end. I think we're all happy to get ready to turn the page, and we'll reflect back on 2020 here over the next uh, several minutes. How you doing? Doing well, doing well. You know, uh, that's kind of an interesting topic that you brought up, uh, kind of reflecting on 2020, but one of the things I'm working on now is trying to find some positives from Florida State Athletics from, from 2020. And I think I've found nine or 10 good ones. So uh, we'll be running down the site pretty soon. Well, I would say on-field success for about every program outside of football would have to be on that list. Would it not? I mean, soccer won a championship, basketball won a championship, the sports that played competed well. Yeah. I think, you know, like you said, men's basketball, regular season title, women's soccer going perfect. Uh, running all the way to the ACC title. John Pack was one that kind of went under the radar. I almost forgot about him playing in the U.S. Open after having a, another, you know, successful run through the amateur. Um, I think he won two tournaments, Mobile and the Seminole Inter- Intercollegiate. So there's been, you know, some definite positives. And, and even in football, I consider that North Carolina win. You knock off a top five opponent at home. It was really feel good at that point. It's kind of a kind of a building block and yeah what what you would otherwise maybe consider not the not the greatest of football seasons for sure how are we going to frame the um, change of culture in football and when will we know if it's stuck or is continuing to work how, how in the world are we going to quantify any of that 
is also a question for me. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, again, it's a better question for you, KJ, because because you lived it in the '70s when Coach Bowden was changing the culture with his arrival in '76 and doing the youth movement. I I see parallels still. I know we've talked about this quite a bit. We're not going to really know if it's taking shape and taking hold, and and guys are buying in until next fall, and that's I think that's what's going to make it difficult. Is a lot of people want want it now. It's a it's a fast food kind of nation we we want to see the results we want to be able to feel it see it whatnot um i i think spring games we're, we're going to get just a small small glimpse and and that is what it is but we're just gonna have to wait long term um you know the transfer portal has become an interstate there's a lot of players leaving and, and you know for florida state you have to hope that, that coach norvell finds some really good ones besides mckenzie milton and uh, and jerquez mcleon so yeah, it's going to take time. It's really going to take time before we actually see or can feel that. You mentioned recruiting, so let's just dive in there. Currently, 16 high school kids signed. The two transfers you just referenced, one high school kid committed. That's the Kimo Macinoli, who may or may not actually ink with Florida State in February, as there's other interests too. So that leaves room for six or seven more, I guess, Bob. Do you think this is imminent, or do you think it literally changes by the hour if John Smith puts his name in the portal on Saturday and FSU's interested, we may have him in tow on Sunday, that sort of thing? It sounds like things with the portal do happen really fast. You know, within hours, I think Florida State staff was on was on Jarquez. He played down in South Florida. So I think he, he was kind of a known guy, Um his mom, he said something that was very interesting. His mom has never watched him play college football. That's what uh, he told Charles Fishbein, our, our recruiting analyst. So I think it is attractive. Guys from potentially the state of Florida, they're at other schools. Maybe they want to come closer to home. Maybe they find a, an easier path on the depth chart. There's a lot of um, opportunities. And, you know, Norvell and the staff have really pitched playing time playing time is is a reason to transfer to Florida State or to sign with Florida State. So the, the slots are minimal uh, on the high school ranks. I think besides Kimo Macanelli, really just the receiver out of Louisiana, uh, Destin Pazin, is potentially the only other signee that, that we think might be in the mix right now for February. There could be a couple names surely pop up because this is all really fluid. But when you're dealing with such limited spots, it's it's really tough. It's a tough roster management situation. I read a report, guys, that uh, with the uh, kid that signed either Thursday or Friday, that Florida State moved from the mid-30s to number 22 in terms of the ranked class. Uh, you know, the uh, negative uh, naysayer in me thinks, how in the world can one kid move you, move you up 10 spots but at the same time, you know, there were folks talking about Florida State's recruiting class being in the 40s or 50s. And, you know, at least by one account, it sits at 22. That would that's that's a miraculous accomplishment. Don't you agree? Yeah, a four star receiver gives you a nice bump there. And I think that's that kind of makes you feel much better about where things stand. I think a lot of fans will compare the numbers based on other ACC schools and the SEC schools that I think Florida State kind of compare um, themselves to. So that's that's certainly understandable. But again, looking long-term, it's about development. It's about evaluating a class two, three years down the road. So it's hard to say 
I mean, honestly, it, it's hard to say which guy you would even pick to be the impactful player who's going to come in and, and play as a true freshman. It's so difficult to project that. You know, who's going to be the next, uh, you know, Robert Scott or Lawrence Tofili who can come in and, and be a contributor year one? You hope that there's a group of them because they're going to be needed. You know, they're, again, playing time is, is immensely available for everybody. But um, I, I guess I take stock in the rankings to just a certain extent, but much more curious how Norvell has kind of built a reputation on who he hires and who he develops just to kind of see how this all plays out down the road. Well, the Osceola did a story early in Norvell's tenure where you looked at his recruiting classes at Memphis, and I don't remember the numbers offhand, but more or less he was recruiting the 65th best class. And if you re-ranked it at the end of the line, it was the, the 21st best class, whereas Florida State has recruited probably on average over that period the 15th ranked class. And if you re-rank it, I don't even know where it'd be based on the on-field product the last few years. So there is more to the stars as Keith has hammered home and will do so uh, for as long as this show endures. <laughs> yeah. Memphis made a living on three stars. If you look back at the, you know, the two, four, seven rankings or anybody else, most of their classes are three stars. A lot of junior college guys, of course, too. And they kind of made a living off figuring out if those guys blended in, uh, you know, again, I, I reference, um, I think Chris Claybrooks was the guy with the Jaguars who was a, a JUCO receiver who became a defensive back and went from walk on at Memphis to a starter at Memphis. So they just keep finding those type of guys. Um, they're looking for, frankly, hunger, speed, fit. Or are you willing to buy into the vision? And, and I think, you know, this is the class that is hungry. It's not filled with five stars. And it's perfectly acceptable if people look around and say, well, I, I want five stars. But you got to also want guys who are wanting to be at Florida State and wanting to work hard and buy into the vision. And, and you have to think, even though you're building these relationships over Zoom and FaceTime, that you have figured it out and figured out who those guys are and if they can contribute. Bob, since we last chatted, Marvin Wilson did the expected and announced he was going. Pro. We all knew that. Hamza did the same thing. Janoris Robinson moving on. Did that surprise you at all? I think he debated it pretty well um, going into the 2020 season. He was thinking about it, kind of weighing his options. I, I think he is someone who could have benefited from one more year of college football. I still view him as a guy who is a pass rusher and, and not necessarily the, the best against the run. I, I think his measurables are, are pretty impressive. And, and if the work ethic is there and, you know, somebody in the NFL is going to take a shot at him for sure. You know, is he a slam dunk first four or five round type of guy? I, I don't think so. He's just going to have to work out and, and, and get that kind of resume. But, you know, it's like everybody always says, it, it's, it just takes one team to really take a shot at you and, and think that you can be developed. The, the interesting thing with J-Rob, if you're buying into his stock, you know, how much did his not having a house in, because of Hurricane Michael, how much did his mom's situation really weigh on him? you know, as far as when he was on the field and now they have a house, you know, because of the Florida state community, because of that GoFundMe campaign. Now that's all kind of settled and behind him. Will results on the field show for him now that he's going on in the NFL. That It's an interesting storyline. I think guys, I read somewhere, I should have written it down. Hopefully you can bail me out, but it was yesterday, uh, Tuesday or Monday 
We're one of the ACC schools that already announced that 17 of their football seniors were coming back for another year. 17. How do you manage that roster? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, well, the, the good thing is with the – I think they call them these super seniors. You do have flexibility beyond 85. So that is correct. So super that is seniors correct. Don't, don't count. But, yeah, as far as playing time and, and how do you manage the room and the size of the room and maybe you've got too many linebackers and not enough defensive tackles or, or whatnot, it's a it's going to be a roster challenge in football and in every sport. Just ask Mike Martin Jr. College baseball is just flooded with talent right now because of how the draft worked out and, you know, not, not as many high school kids were able to, to be drafted, honestly. So, you know, in Forest State's case, we're going to be really looking at what seniors come back. Uh, you know, Devontae Love-Taylor has pledged that he's coming back, and that is a big one because he can play guard, tackle, multiple spots. Uh, Leonard Warner just announced he's going to the transfer portal um, today on Wednesday. So so that's one that we think is moving on. But we'll be very, very interested to see how many of these seniors decide um, they're bought in, they want to stick around, they want to help the program and also help out their draft stock moving forward. This is a technicality question, Bob. So I don't know is probably the answer, but I'll ask you anyway. So you mentioned Leonard Warner and there's probably some other guys. What if they, you know, they're in the transfer portal. What if they don't find a landing spot and the relationship is such, could you bring them, if you brought them back, if it was for, you know, if they wanted to come back and Florida state would have them, would they count against your 25 in that scenario? Or in essence, if that's a senior coming back, you know, you can go above and beyond. And I don't know if there's anybody who would ultimately land there, but you get what I'm saying in terms of just adding bodies to the roster. Sure. I mean, if you look at the guys who have left Florida State in the last year or so, a lot of them did not quickly find a home. I, I think Fagan landed at NC State in the last couple weeks, but I believe he left after game one of the season. So there was a big gap between the time where he was at Florida State and landed at NC State. So if you go in the portal, my understanding is you are no longer obligated, let's put Florida State in this example, to try and welcome a guy back. Once he goes in the portal, he's technically gone. Now, could he come back? I think you've got a bridge to, to build and mend first. Does he count against the 25? I would hope not. But that's kind of more of a, a compliance phone-a-friend question yeah. I, I might have to pass off on. Well, and it may be that anybody that's already out there is not somebody they'd want back, you know. So I'm just I'm thinking of ways because to, to add bodies to that roster. Hey, we'll, we're going to talk uh, with David Hale in our next segment, and we'll dive into the playoff uh, more deeply with him in that conversation. But uh, in light of circumstances this week and how everything unfolded, are are you on board with staying with this four team? Do you want eight team? What's your quick answer on where you want to go with this? I've always felt if you have five power conferences you need five seats at the table and probably at least an at-large I'd be in favor of six because that would give you an extra couple spots to give you some more money top two seeds could get buys if you so chose um, I think where the money's going clearly is expanding the field to six or eight it's just a matter of time right there yeah Heisman who's gonna win it you know I'm the least Heisman guy. I, I think – I thought Kyle Trask was probably one of the best players I had seen all year. He, he seemed to, despite the losses, sling it really, really well and kind of love his storyline as, as the walk-on. 
I, I have no really good feel for it. Do, do you guys have a good feel? I, I've read a couple of reports that Trask isn't even one of the finalists. Right, right. Um, I, I think it's going to be one of the Alabama kids. I don't have a vote. Uh, if I did, I'd vote for Trevor Lawrence. Uh, Dabo be damned. I think he's the best player out there, but that's my two cents. But I, I think given that he missed the biggest game against Notre Dame earlier this year, I think it'll end up being uh, probably Devonta Smith, actually. Smith has really shown himself uh, on the yeah. national stage the last three or four weeks, no question. Hey, last thought, Bob, and we'll, we'll wrap up on this. And Keith and I have, have talked more extensively about this, but, but Leonard is uh, on the nominee list for, for the Naismith Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, he's the – I still don't think Florida – the average Florida State fan grasps this. He, he's fifth all-time in ACC history in, in overall wins and in conference wins. And the list is like Kay and Roy Williams and Dean Smith and maybe Gary Williams and then him. Uh, do you think he gets in this first time around? I think ultimately, well, I'm, I'm wondering if he gets in this time around. I think ultimately he gets in. The, the list is, is pretty incredible, the, the nominees – you know, men and women all, all over college and pro basketball. The one note that I found, I, I know I, I overlooked this for probably weeks and weeks, but in the game notes, Chuck Walsh has, has reminded, he has 365 wins at Florida State. So think about it, that's one for every day of a year. That's, that's pretty incredible what he's done, I think, since arriving in, in 2002. He's, he's really established Florida State as, as a basketball power. Well, I think the other part of his legacy, though, it's not counting wins. It's graduation rate and success. It's also when you look at what he's done, he's not been a guy that's been at a, uh, you know, it, it, he, they're the new bloods. He hadn't been in a blue blood program. He's been a, a rehab and rebuild the program. And he's also been a trailblazer. I mean, he was one of the first African-American assistants, Austin P and at Kentucky, there's so much more to him than just counting the wins. But then when you look at the wins of late and the success, uh, it just rounds out that resume. Even By the way, 80 million other reasons uh, with the new contract that Jonathan Isaac just signed with the magic. <laughs> yeah. I-, I was actually looking that up today, Keith. Isaac is four years and 80 and Malik easily signed for four years and 60. Now, Dwayne Bacon, you might say he hasn't done much at the NBA level, but he's got $5 million in the door already. Patrick Williams' rookie contract is four years and 32 mil. Vassell is four years and 18 mil. Terrence Mann is three years, 4.3. Fiondo is two years, four. And Trent Forrest is on a, a two-way, one-year contract. With that's guaranteed at around 450 or 500. So I didn't do the cumulative math, but those guys are doing all right. <laughs> And how about Solomon Olaby coming back and graduating? And the, which is, goes back to the point about what his players do. Exactly. Yeah. Bob, we'll let yeah. you go. have a good holiday. Thanks for all your, uh, your work this year. And uh, enjoy the break. We're, we're going we're gonna to take next week off as well, and we'll just ring in the new year, and then uh, sports will continue in 21, and, and hopefully it'll be a bigger and brighter year than what 2020 was. I think so. I think we've got a lot to look forward to. Take care. Enjoy the holidays. All right. Thank, Thank you, Bob. Sir take a break and continue with front row Knowles right after this. Front row Knowles is brought to you by the Osceola dedicated to FSU sports and fan experiences. Sign up for a free trial at the Osceola.com or call 833 FSU news. 
back on Front Row Knowles. Thanks to uh, Bob Franti from the Osceola for joining us. And now a longtime friend of the program, David Hale, ESPN guru, aficionado. And I don't know what the rest of the business cards. Do we even have business cards now? We just have digital signatures and avatars and all that. But anyway, how are you, David? I am. Well, I have business cards. I have like six of them in my wallet that have probably been in there for like two years now. So. Uh, yeah, somebody, if somebody wants a business card, I'll be happy to give it to them. Cause my wallet, I got a little bit of a Costanza wallet thing going on anyway. I, I use mine to write notes to myself. <laughs> Just <laughs> stick them in my front pocket. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I need a sheet of paper. Well, David, I, I reached out to you earlier this week. Uh, you know, the, the playoff topic, I know everybody has opined about it since the, the final four was announced, which I think was actually announced back in August or whenever the first poll came <laughs> to be these four. And we all know there's no perfect solution, and, and I don't think we need to deliberate uh, all the specifics of how something new might work, but kind of what's your general thought on on where we are with this system? Uh, and maybe, I, you know, I asked for yours, but to me, the, gr- the group of five, if, why bother ranking them if you're just never going to include them at all? I mean, yeah. out of the list and rank the power five only. But anyway, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from, but I'll let you jump in on your thoughts. I think that the inherent problem starts with this. What is the mission statement of the college football playoff and the committee? What is the goal? What do we want out of this? So I think the committee would tell you that their goal is to figure out who in their minds, the four best teams are and put them in the playoff. And if that's the only goal and that's all that anybody cares about, then they're doing a perfectly fine job of it. Because I think, once again, the four best teams are probably in the playoff. You can make an argument about Notre Dame or Texas A&M. Quite frankly, I don't think either of them has much of a shot or would have had much of a shot at winning at all. So I don't really care. I would argue that Notre Dame probably does have the better win. And I would think if they played head-to-head, I would probably pick Notre Dame to win. So I'm good with who they picked as the top four. My – question is though should that be the way that we judge this should that be their job should that be their mission statement because i think there should be a lot more going on here number one you can just start from the obvious we saw texas a&m get lambasted by alabama we've seen clemson absolutely destroy notre dame a week ago i don't think either of those teams was going to win a national championship we don't need to see it again why not give cincinnati who i also don't think is going to win a national championship but has at least not had the chance to prove that they can't do it. Why not give them a chance? That's a question I think a lot of people want to ask. Um, But I think the bigger problem here is the monotony of what top level college football has become. And it's bad for the sport. It's bad for marketing the sport. You know, we have uh, been blessed in college football that the money keeps pouring in, but that is not guaranteed to happen for forever. And, uh, At some point, when you're losing fans on the West Coast, when you're losing fans in a lot of areas, when you are having a number of people who just say, look, this is all, as you said, predetermined. It was written in the stars in August when they made the preseason rankings. Why did I bother watching all of this? You know, Dabo Sweeney said the other day when he was asked about it, like, well, I don't want, I I like it now because games mean so much, but they don't because Notre Dame didn't matter whether they won or lost in the ACC title game. They were getting in the playoff. And Alabama, it didn't matter whether they won or lost. They were getting in the playoff. A lot of games, every game that Coastal Carolina played, as fun as it was and as great as they looked, none of them mattered for the playoff. So it's this dichotomy of, I think, we've turned the playoff into the the only thing that matters. And the fact of the matter is, when the playoff is all that matters and it's the same 
three to four teams every year that are making it and the same two teams that are usually playing for it, you start to say, I've seen this show before. I don't need to watch the reruns. And that's bad for the sport. I think that also lends credence to the theory that at least at the professional level, you know, if you look at the percentage of teams that get into the playoff in the NFL, for example, it's almost half. I mean, yeah. you've got you've got one division where the division winner is going to have a losing record. Now, that would lend itself to having a 30-team college playoff. I personally think that's too big, but it certainly speaks to the need to increase, whether it's six or it's eight or it's 12 or whatever it is. And the argument at the collegiate level is, look what happened to the basketball tournament when they did that. Yeah, I mean, look, there is clearly um, a number that is too high, and there's clearly a number that's too low. We established that two is probably too low, but the flip side of that is, frankly, most of the semifinals have not been great thus far. Um, And this year, if you ask me, if we only had two teams in the playoff, would that be okay? I'd say, yeah, I'm fine with that, because while I think Ohio State – might be a very good team. I'm okay with saying you only play six games. Sorry, you're out of luck this year. Alabama and Clemson are the two best teams. I expect both of them to win in the semifinal. Um, On the other hand, Cincinnati is never going to get a chance, as you said. Uh, UCF a few years ago did not get a chance. Some of these teams are just never going to get a chance. The number I like personally is eight because I think you – settle things on the field. If you win your conference, you make a playoff as a power five team. I am great with that. That should be how it is. What happens on the field matters. Um, You expand into more bowl games. The other thing that people are frustrated about, and I agree it's a problem is that if we've got a bunch of players opting out of playing in bowl games, like doesn't that sort of speak to how unimportant those extra bowl games are? I think if you make more bowl games, more important, there's less chance of those guys opting out. Um, and, and while yes, I don't think teams number six and seven and eight are probably going to win a national championship. It will make for some better games. I think at some point along the line, and, uh, you still leave room for, for the wild card sort of aspect. And, and I, no, I would agree in, in most years, the sec probably has two of the top, uh, four or five teams. I Let's give that second team a chance to get in too. And I think a lot of people look at like the arguments over what the committee does and says, well, this is, we need to get to a point where we're not arguing about it. Nobody in college football wants that. The arguments are a perk to this system. They like that. That's good for ratings. It's good for people to talk about it. Um, But the wild card still allows that. We'd still be having these discussions about who the wild card should be if we were doing eight. So um, I think all of those things would be beneficial. My guess is at some point we get there not because the group of five feels left out, but because the Pac-12 is looking at like a fourth straight year at, at, or four out of five years that it's been left out. Eventually, uh, the SEC or the Big Ten is just going to have a confluence of events that they get left out, and they're going to start saying, nah, nah, four is not enough anymore. We need more. Uh, if I was Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12, I would be leading the charge for expansion today. Uh, I don't really see him doing that as much. But, but I think it also speaks to sort of the larger issues within college football that it's not really the committee's fault that that the Pac-12 has no shot or isn't making a playoff. It's not the committee's fault that um, so few teams are the ones that are always winning. Um, That is a level of of inequality within college football that 
is just sort of the natural course of events and the rich will continue to get richer if it's only the same teams that are benefiting from the money and the uh, the, the spotlight that comes with playing in the playoffs. So I don't know how you fix that because I don't want to see college football go the way of the NFL where you have parity because I feel like the NFL as a product has been watered down because you don't typically have great teams. Um, and even the Jets have sort of proven, I guess, it's really hard to be so bad that you lose every game. Um, parody is keeps a lot more fan bases interested, but I think the product goes down here. You know, when Clemson and Alabama play, you get a great product on the field, but for the other 128 fan bases in FBS, they're like, come on, I've seen this already. I don't know how you fix that. Well, and I think, yeah, let's move the conversation from the playoff. Cause I think that's the bigger ongoing issue, David. It's, it's very regional. I mean, the PAC 12 has not been a factor in the playoff, even as ACC guys and Florida state guys, We've been looking at the TV revenue for years now, and that gap keeps getting wider. And, and you're yeah. now going to hand the SEC even more money, which is going to, to your point, make the rich get richer. That to me is uh, that's where it gets more dangerous when you extrapolate it out five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. I mean, how are the other schools going to compete? I mean, it's, it is a great question. And, uh, Look, I, I don't want to – I don't like taking sports conversations into the political landscape, but, I mean, this is sort of at the heart of what a lot of economic theory is all about, is like, you know, you, you don't – what's the uh, effectively marginal tax rate that you can, you can uh, tax a society before they, you know, either revolt and say, I don't want to pay that many taxes or don't pay enough taxes and your infrastructure starts falling apart. I mean, it's sort of the same idea of, like, the SEC is is putting the product on the field that probably warrants more money coming in. But if the SEC is the only league that can continue to do that, if money is just flowing into those and everybody else is screwed, the larger sport of college football deteriorates. So again, I, I wish I had the magic bullet answer here. I don't. Um, but I also think because of the way that college football, the leadership and power structure is set up and that you've got, 10 different conferences, five of which are power conferences. You've got 130 presidents. You've got all these different schools with competing levels of interest. Um, you know, Vanderbilt is getting SEC money. They've, they're never going to compete for an SEC title. Uh, like there's just all these different pushes and pulls. It's a diffuse power structure. And so there's no one at the top who says, well, what's good for college football? What is good for the sport as a whole? Not Alabama or the SEC or the Southeast region of college football. What is good for the sport? We don't have that person. My guess is we're a long way off from ever having it. And I think some of the problems that we ran into with COVID this year and the lack of sort of a national unified approach to how to deal with it, how to collect information and data and uh, how to respond when new issues come up, it showcased what a, a void in leadership there is in the sport. And this is just another uh, example of, of what a problem that can be. The, the, the potential, one of many, but the potential answer to that is exactly what you're speaking to, which is taking the top, I don't know what the number is, 48, 64, 72, the, the top teams, taking them out of the umbrella of the NCAA and they create their own entity. You do away with conferences in terms of the conferences negotiating their individual TV contracts and everybody gets the same share of the pie. The problem with that is also something you spoke to is that gets you more towards the NFL model and it takes away a lot of the charm and a lot of the history of the collegiate model. So 
it, it's a delicate dance and a delicate balance. I think people know how to get there. It's the question of what you want to give up and the unknown unintended consequence of giving it up in order to get there. Right. And we're at such a weird place right now because a lot of this kind of I, I, I compared it the other day to the Electoral College and like if you were setting up a system from scratch now, you probably wouldn't set it up the way that it, it is. Same way that we have now with the bowl system and the conferences and all of that. Um, but it worked because for a long time, the the margins were not as extreme as they are now. But you again, what do we need all these bowls for is a question that everybody asks. I'm fine with bowls because more football is better. But the whole bowl system seems inherently flawed when a team like army is getting left out uh, until a last minute opening happens. Um, we look at scheduling and, you know, this year was a perfect example. When you see coastal and BYU schedule their game four days in advance, and it's probably one of the best games of the year, that should be a reminder. Like we don't have to do it this way where we're scheduling literally a decade and a half out. Um, all of these things are sort of these weird little quirks of college football that you say, boy, it, it is such a, uh, a thing that takes away from doing this things the right way. But the problem with that is all of us are big college football fans. And a lot of the quirks of the game are what we love about the sport. It's what makes it special and different and unique. And so you got to be careful about how many of those quirks you want to tweak, because yes, it, on, on the face, it would seem ridiculous to do things X, Y, and Z way, but you never know quite where those things are going to be. And I, I think one of the problems that we do have, though, genuinely, is that we, we use the term unintended consequences as sort of a catch-all for not doing anything. And uh, college football as a sport is extremely risk-averse, so we tend to move very slowly in terms of progress. And I think there is, um, again, a lot of competing interests. So what seems like progress for uh, you know Florida State or – uh, Coastal Carolina or whomever might not be the same idea of progress for Alabama or South Carolina or whomever. Um, so all of those things kind of play into the fact that when all decisions are being made about like, all right, how does this impact me as a AD an administrator, a coach, a school, um, nobody's ever looking at the big picture. And that's the, it, the problem that I think we keep running into. Well, and you said it, I mean, this year it, it pointed out, it magnified, all these, whether you call them quirks or issues, you know, in this COVID era, but I feel like we're just going to revert back to exactly what transpired before. You know, when we were into the there was conversation, no coaches are going to get fired this year. Nobody's going to pay buyouts. You know, we've seen everybody's getting fired still. They're paying the buyouts. I mean, we've shown you can schedule a game on three days notice, but what's going to happen. We're going to go back to 10 years because there's existing contracts. Um, Anyway, we can continue to deliberate there. But what, what do you think about the, the ACC's new commissioner hire? And I guess the, the second part of this question, David, would be for a long time, really the, the Big Ten and the SEC have driven the whole conversation. They've been the leaders. And the ACC, and maybe you disagree on Swafford, to me, they've been much more a follower. Now, this year it was different when they put the pressure on the SEC and said, hey, we're going to play 10 plus a non-conference. To me, that was outside of what Swafford had done. Yeah. Uh, and, and putting the pressure on the SEC. But really what I'm saying is, given that the Big Ten is at this they, – they've had challenges this year. I mean, Ohio State played six games, 21 days if you test positive. Is this a chance for the ACC with two teams in the playoff and a new commissioner to really become uh, at that level with the SEC and kind of take – or, or at least join 
the Big Ten and the SEC and being more of a leader than a follower? Um, I think there's a lot kind of going on. There's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I think the new commissioner hire from everyone that I have talked to that knows him well has spoken incredibly highly of him. Uh, I think this was a smart hire. There was a lot of folks in Big Ten country who were very upset that he was not the Big Ten's choice as commissioner when Kevin Warren was hired. Um, so I think it, it, it was a, an extremely shrewd hire for the ACC. The one area that I will point to, and I, I say I don't know exactly what his thoughts are on this, and I would love to ask him, but as AD at Northwestern, he was sort of atop the power structure when the push for unionization happened uh, a few years back. Well, I guess probably about a decade back now. We're at a very tricky time in terms of, of athlete compensation and athlete unionization. And I, I, that's the one area I agree with you, Tom, on everything that you said about we're going to go back to the way things always were after this. But that's the one area where you saw some real movement in terms of player empowerment. And I wonder how much that changes. And I wonder how much his mind on this has evolved uh, since the, the, the Northwestern unionization push uh, about a decade ago. So um, that's one thing. I, the other thing is that everything is sort of in flux in terms of what TV is in the long term because we don't know what the next TV contracts are going to look like. We don't know what's going to happen with the playoff and, and payouts there. But, I mean, I, look, I work for a giant TV network, and we're, <laughs> we've lost some money here over the last few uh, months because of COVID-19. I think um, the entire landscape of television and broadcast has changed quite a bit and how people are consuming. Um, people aren't paying for cable as much as they used to. Live sporting events, however, are one of the few things that people will still watch live. So the the um, requirement or the desire, the demand for that among TV networks is even higher. But I just wonder what the, the payouts are going to start looking like over the long term and, and how many networks kind of regret some of the big money deals that they end up uh, locked into for the long term. These are big questions, too, that make it really hard to sort of project what does college football's power structure look like in 10 years? But the one thing that I also always come back to, and this is always sort of at the, the, the core of the issues for the ACC, is if you're, you're talking about SEC programs, I mean, even a place like South Carolina that does not win, right? I mean, that is not a, a historically successful program. But they pack 85,000 folks into their stadium for every game. There is... Uh, they're niche markets in a lot of respects, but they are passionate niche markets. And the ACC outside of Florida State and Clemson, and maybe to some extent, a few of the other teams like Miami or Virginia Tech just does not have that. And so at the end of the day, demand, your audience drives so much of this. And the audience at the ACC level is just different than it is at the SEC. And there's no, you know, from year in and year out, what, what happens on the field might change, but those audiences, they don't change nearly so much. David, the other thing I'd throw in there, we don't need to get into it, but the other thing that I think is going to have a say in this goes back to the Oklahoma-Georgia Supreme Court decision that opened up television to begin with. There's talk, appropriately, in my opinion, about the uh, NIL stuff at the congressional level. And if Congress goes outside or broader than the NIL level uh, and somehow it gets into the court system, college football may be forced to do something. Uh, and I'm not sure that's a good thing either. Yeah. And I've talked to numerous ADs, presidents, and even commissioners, John Swafford among them, who have said, like, I wish that we could do this ourselves without letting it get to the 
Congress and the courts because they're going to do it in a way that we're not happy about. Right. But we can't all get on the same page to do it the way we think it should be done. So because, you know, <laughs> essentially college football ties its shoelaces together and trips over itself again and again and again. And so it becomes incumbent upon the government at either the state level, which we're seeing a lot of the federal level or the, the judiciary to take those steps instead. And one of the things that I mean, we're living in a real ugly time politically uh, where there's not many folks who are on either side of the aisle who agree with each other. And yet the name image likeness stuff is one of those things that has bipartisan support. You very rarely get to hear that anymore. So the, the, the boulder is rolling down the hill. And if somebody in college football wants to stop it, they got to get on that right now because um, as you said, I don't think this is a thing that's just going to go away. Somebody's going to step in and do it one way. And I, my guess is it's not going to be the way college football would have drawn it up itself. David, let's finish with the easy stuff. Who's going to win the Heisman? And you may be a voter, so you can't disclose who you voted for if that's the case, I guess. And who's going to win the national title? I am a voter. Uh, so I cannot disclose. I will tell you, I think it's very fascinating because I can't remember the last year we had this many viable candidates that you could make. You know, I think you have to kind of really stretch to make some some arguments and some cases for guys a lot of years. This year, if you wanted to pick Trevor Lawrence because he's the best player in college football, even if his numbers don't suggest it, I'm right there with you. Kyle Trask and Mac Jones both have incredible numbers that I think would warrant serious consideration. Um, one just played on a team that lost a couple more games, but the numbers are pretty much the same. Then you can look at, at uh, Devontae Smith, for example, and say like, well, Mac Jones is as good as he is because of Devontae Smith, except also he's got that guy Najee Harris in the backfield too, who probably has a really good case. Uh, I watched a guy play last night named Zach Wilson for BYU who has been as impressive as any college quarterback that I have seen this year that I think if he was playing on a power five team might be the winner. Um, I, I can't remember a year where we've had this many guys that legitimately warrant consideration. I won't be shocked to see it go in any number of ways. I think it's probably going to come down to Devonte Smith, Trevor Lawrence and Mac Jones. And it's just kind of a matter of what priorities the voters are, are going to see. I think if, if Trevor Lawrence had played in that first Notre Dame game, we might not be having this conversation. I wouldn't be surprised if he was the front runner, but he didn't. So here we are because it's and if, if Florida hadn't thrown a shoe, we might be having another conversation. <laughs> Ain't that true? Well, see, and, and yet no one is talking about Marco Wilson as a Heisman. And that was a phenomenal throw. I mean, he got real leverage under that, got some real air under it. It's um, the best that, shoe throw I've ever seen in that situation. I mean, when you... <laughs> Couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, national title, man, it's hard for me to say. Uh, I look at the, the semifinals. I will be shocked if, if Alabama doesn't win. I just The matchup does not favor Notre Dame anywhere. Um, I, I, I think Alabama wins that one pretty easily. Uh, the, the thing about the, the Sugar Bowl, I look at and I say, we just don't know that much about Ohio State right now. I know how talented a lot of their players are. But they have, they've only gotten on the field six times. There's been breaks in between a lot of those games. Um, they remind me a little bit of what I saw out of Clemson leading into the first Notre Dame game, which was a team that had just not gotten all of its ducks in a row because they hadn't been able to stay healthy and on the field. So, um, you know, if you look at, at Clemson after that first Notre Dame game, you'd say, well, I don't know if they're winning their national championship. Well, then you look at them after last weekend when they just utterly throttled Notre Dame and you say, oh, that's the team I thought they were supposed to be all year. I still think Ohio State can get to 
that, oh, that's the team I thought they can be. So I, I don't think they're a pushover in the Sugar Bowl by any means. I, I'll, I'm more than likely going to end up picking Clemson. I think if it gets to a Clemson-Alabama matchup, I actually like Clemson's chances this year a good bit. A, they've got the better quarterback, and I, and I know Mac Jones has had a phenomenal year. Trevor Lawrence is, is a much better player than that, in my opinion. And, and B, I think there's a little bit of Alabama's defense that I'm not going to say they're bad. They're just not at Alabama level that we would expect. And they've played four decent offenses this year, and all four of them had pretty good days, including Ole Miss and Florida, who by far the two best that they played, who both put up 40-plus against them. So uh, I think there's a little more of an opening for Clemson to move the football against Alabama than, uh, you know, that, that's really where I see the advantage, that and the quarterback. So um, if you're asking me pick somebody to win it all right now, I, I'm leaning Clemson, though I also think they probably have the much tougher semifinal matchup. I knew you were a Clemson fan at heart, David. That's why we brought you on. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> David Hale from ESPN joined us via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline. Happy holidays, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, y'all. Thank you, More David. Front Row Knowles right after this. Front Row Knowles on 97.9 ESPN Radio is presented by Hobson Chevrolet of Cairo, Georgia. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Now, back to Tom and Keith. Time for us to finish up here on Front Row Knowles. Lots of reaction. David Hale has really good perspective, does he not, Keith? He does. He does. And the thing I like about him is, is that he um, he can he he chooses to remain objective. I know he's got his own uh, wishes and wants about what he thinks needs to happen. But I've always found you you disagree with me if you do. But I've always found that his reporting. And his conversation is always well balanced. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Now, if you look at social media, and this is a sign of a good reporter, every everybody, no matter who you're a fan of, you think that he's out to get you. So there's plenty of Florida State fans that thinks Hale is anti-FSU, just as there's plenty of Clemson fans that think he's anti-Dabo and all that. So several things there. I think he hit the nail on the head. Uh, we talked about this. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, I've been a supporter of Swafford. Uh, I haven't liked and I didn't like the fact that the the league was silent on the issue when the Clemson Florida state game got canceled. And I just think there's times over the years when, when Swaffer could have been more out of out in front, but the ACC has been this gentleman's league, so to speak. So I'm hoping that changes a little bit, but I, I hit the nail on the head related to the TV revenue. And I've thought this for a while, if you're selling a product that people aren't interested in Keith, you're not going to get the same dollars as the guy who's selling the product that somebody is interested in. And at the end of the day, that's what the SEC ACC disparity is. The ACC has got private institutions. It doesn't have as big alumni bases. It doesn't have a hundred thousand people packing into every stadium. So it's a tougher sell. So there is an obvious reason why the SEC is making more money on its TV deal. And it's, and, and there's an obvious reason. There's an obvious reason why the ACC is a better basketball league because you'll fill up a, a 12,000 or 14,000 right. seat arena where, you know, an SEC school has a 15 or 18,000 seat arena, but there's only 9,000 people in it. Um, however, 
the revenue associated with basketball is disproportionately less than the revenue associated with football. Well, and those are just factual things. We just had this conversation about bowl games and do they mean anything? The, the, the Gasparilla bowl, which I know was canceled for this year, gets a higher TV number than a Duke North Carolina basketball game. That's just the reality of it. So we're going to be keep playing bowl games. Um, some of the other things there, we didn't ask him specifically, I think, and I commented that, you know, a lot of college athletics is going to go back to the same way it was. And I think that's true on some things. I do think that there's enough of a groundswell that we'll get to eight teams, but in terms of a playoff, but I don't see it happening until this initial 12 year contract is complete. And this year is year seven. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think it's just a cleaner break. And that's when they would look at doing that. Maybe not. I don't know. Do you disagree on that? I do disagree with you, but for a reason that we haven't talked about. Um, It may be that the networks go to whomever and say, look, we're losing money. Okay. So we've got to have eight teams in the playoff. You've got to find a way to do that because we need those other four games or two games, whatever, three games, I guess it would be, whatever it is mathematically. We need those games to be a lot higher rated than the Gasparilla Bowl. And I think that might be something that happens. Long well, shot, long shot, but maybe. And the second well, part maybe. of it is, second part of it is, you know, again, back to whatever college football is told to do. You know, some of the bigger changes that have affected college football are things like scholarship reductions. You know, when they went from unlimited to 105, now we're at 85. The the cap on assistant coaches, you and I have talked about, should there be a cap on salaries or the number of non-on-the-field individuals that can be involved in your program? I mean, can you do some things and should you do some things that would make everyone do it the same way? I don't know yet but certainly those types of things could be dictated if Congress or the courts get involved. Well, I hope you're right that they look at it sooner. And the bottom line is always the bottom line. And given lost revenue, maybe that'll force the conversation. Maybe it'll force college football to stand up to the Rose Bowl. I mean, we've seen this year that on two weeks notice, they can pull it out of California and move it to Texas. So maybe they can actually say, you know what, it's great that you love your parade and all that, but we're not going to have the college football playoffs on December 29th on years when the Rose Bowl is not involved because the TV number is not as good. We're going to keep the final four on New Year's Day, and you cannot be a part of the college football playoff. That's your choice. We all love the sunset. The reality is the stadium is pretty antiquated. You know, we can, we're, we're interested in the game. None of us are tuning in to watch the sunset at the end of the third quarter. And the other part of that is – you know, the other part of that is you would open up again if you had more teams in the playoff where, you know, every fifth year, or every seventh year, we're picking on the folks uh, down in the central part of our state. But you, you would say to the Gasparilla Bowl, you're going to hold a round one playoff game. You know, that's going to be attractive to some of these smaller bowls on the years that they get to participate, my opinion. I just hope that they have the conversation. And regarding right. commissioner, I, I agree that the the, the the challenge in getting a college football commissioner is right now you have five powerful entities and they like their power. You got five fiefdoms with the power five conferences. And so getting one person over it, certainly getting to a, a sharing all television revenue point of view, the rich are not going to be on board with that, even though the poor would be. I wish though, even if you had a commissioner and you couldn't solve those issues, 
you could solve many of the things we talk about frequently. It, you, you know, it's, it, to me, it'd be an easier putt to just get everybody to agree on how many conference games you're going to play or on whether or not you're going to allow FCS games or not. Get a little more continuity. Nationalize the refs, which we've talked about for a while. There is some room there. I, I know college football resists change. I think you could get something done, but I'm not optimistic that a commissioner. Well, you, and you could also potentially coordinate the schedules and get out of having to sign contracts eight to 12 years in advance. Um, you have the ability to swap things. You, you could even explore things like the hot National Hockey League. You know, there's, there's a number of Canadian teams in the NHL. Well, they're going to play each other. And so you, instead of having the different divisions, they're going to have a Canadian division. And then and they do right. that to save revenue, uh, save expenses, rather. So you could coordinate more of the scheduling and, and, you know, you hate to talk about it, but some bus rides instead of airplanes. Um, there, there's a lot of positive, but you're exactly right. When you tell Alabama that they're used to receiving X number of dollars, and it would be the good of the order if they would receive 90% of X so that ACC teams could get more money, an Alabama fan, an Alabama AD is not going to like that. However, if you get told you have to do that and you don't have a choice, you're going to resent being told to do that. So I don't know what the right answer is. Uh, we'll just have to play it out and be flexible. What are our two words, Tommy? Flexible and adaptable. We've had to learn to be those in 2020. This is not uh, revenue sharing per se, but the great irony is that all of the ESPN contracts are uh, with uh, Comcast are up for negotiation later this year. Not just ESPN, Disney. The 10-year right. contracts are going to end. So if Comcast wants to co carry ESPN, 1-2 News, SEC Network, Disney, and all the other under the umbrella – they're going to have to take the ACC network. So that deal will get done this year. It expires December 31st. I would think they'll get it done before football season. Does it solve the revenue gap? No. Does it bring closer? Yes. That's all I got. <laughs> well, and like David talked about, at some point, you know, we haven't seen it, but at some point you got to think that the revenue starts going down if, if there are less games, less viewers, less eyeballs, you know, we haven't seen it yet, but that will also start people thinking about, well, we maybe need to cooperate a little bit more because we're seeing a reduction, but we'll see. Keith, have a great holiday. We will do this again in the new year. Thanks for telling. Now, for our listeners, we will be on next week. We'll just be, a, it'll be what we got in the business call an evergreen show, but uh, we'll pick some highlights uh, that uh, maybe you missed uh, live uh, so tune in next week. We'll be on the air and uh, re rehashing and reliving some of our better moments. How about that? Sounds good. Folks, we'll talk to you again soon.